Hey everybody, happy Wednesday, and I'm so privileged to bring this content to you through the wonderful gift that is technology. My name is Tim. Welcome to the Deep Dive Bible Study. I'm so glad that you are here, and I hope that you are ready to rock it in Romans chapter 7. Amen. Deep Dive, Season 5, Episode 14, catching up on the episode list with the deep end. So, Today, we're on Romans chapter 7. Let's get over to the Bible camp. And that's where we're going to be today. Get your Bibles out. Let's take a look at it. Let's get into the study, which is going to be really important for your relationship with Christ. And I'm looking forward to bringing this content to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to speak your word, to hear it, to listen to it, and to be shaped by it. May your word be proclaimed. May our hearts be warmed to love for you and love for one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's get into it. Romans chapter 7. Last time we were together, we talked a lot about slavery, did we not? We talked about that we're either slaves to the law or, uh, I'm sorry, slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness, slaves to the flesh or slaves to God. We talked about the fact that you do not have free will. Remember, only two humans on the face of the earth had free will, Adam, Christ. That's why Christ is referred to as the second Adam. Adam in the New Testament. Adam used his freedom to enslave us. Christ used his freedom to serve the Father and set us free. And so under the New Testament and the New Covenant, we have freedom in Christ. That's what we talked about last week. And we talked again a lot about slavery, a lot about who do we serve? You got to serve somebody. And and we talked a lot about the human will, and we got some questions about it because I knew it was going to stir some questions in your mind about the doctrine of the human will. Uh, do we, as Erasmus, the found really the, the 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 root of humanism, secular humanism today, but the root of Christian humanism in the 16th century, talked about free will being us partnering with God to apply ourselves to the work of salvation. And then Martin Luther on the other side said, no, 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 it doesn't work like that. It is only God who works salvation in us through the Holy Spirit. Our wills are in bondage. Talk about that importantly because unless we understand the bondage of our will, we'll never be set free truly to serve Christ Jesus and be enslaved to the righteousness of God. And then questions come up about that all the time. And we'll get to those questions um, but not today. We've got a lot to talk about today. And so summing up again from last week, sin is slavery. Remember that great passage in verse 17 of Romans 6, that thanks be to God, you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were commanded. All of this is important for where we are going today. Because we're turning a page, right? Bible cam. We're turning a page from Romans 6, which deals with slaves to righteousness or slaves to sin, set free from sin, set free to sl slavery, really, to serve righteousness or God. And now we're going to be turning the page to Romans 7, where Paul is going to talk about husbands and wives. You know, he's going to go on along uh, for a long time about 
you know, what does it mean to be under uh, um, uh, no longer under the law, but rather married to or under the the leadership of Christ? And and this is important. It is an incredible um, pattern of teaching here in Romans six and seven. Romans six slavery. Romans seven marriage. Think about those two relationships. One is a, a, a relationship of doing and uh, serving and being driven into you know, following someone. That's slavery, right? The other marriage is about loving. It's about relating. It's about communication. All those beautiful things that are in marriage. And on the heels of talking about slavery, Paul talks about marriage because we cannot and we must not leave our relationship to God in the domain of slavery. And there are many Christians who have done this. And maybe you're one of them. Well, I've got great news for you. God does not want you to stay there, at least mentally in your head of, I'm just a slave to God. Well, yeah, but there's more to it. There's another part of this incredible gift of salvation. And it is the marriage that we have to God, the marriage that we have to Christ. And it's going to speak to our hearts and it's going to speak to our lives, our motivations, and everything is going to be shaped by this incredible teaching. So let me just talk about this. This is important because Paul answers one crowd of people in the Roman church in the first century in Romans 6 when he talks about slavery. And then he answers another crowd of people in Romans 7 when he talks about marriage. Backing up to Romans chapter 6, Paul is answering a group of people that I call the relativists. These are the people who ask questions like, shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? Like, oh, there's grace. Good. Okay. So since God forgives us, let's just sin. No, 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 no. May it never be, right? That's what Paul says. And, and relativists, relativists love to use the grace of God as a license for sin. Well, there's another end of this, expect, uh, of this Christian experience, the Christian spectrum. And those are the legalists. And that's who he's going to answer in Romans chapter 7. Now, these are the two extremes of the Christian experience. On the right there, legalists, they love rules. They love to-dos. They love to make sure that people are conformed to a pattern of behavior, usually consisting of some mixture of scripture and human tradition. Hear that again. They love to conform people to a pattern of behavior, usually consisting of some mixture of scripture and human tradition. Relativists or antinomians, which we talked about last time, they love grace. They love the idea of relationship with God. They love the idea of loving God, freedom from the law, you know, no rules, just relationship. And, and can I tell you that both of these uh, sides here, relativists and legalists, these are extremes. These are extreme views of the Christian experience. And somewhere along this spectrum is you. You might be Maybe you're diehard relativists, and, and there's a lot of even entire denominations. Just relationship, just loving people. Let's, you know, these are the peace, love, and happiness people. And then on the other side are the legalists way over here. And these are the people, man, diehard about, you better get your life right. You better repent. You're, you might be going to hell. You, I don't know if you're even a Christian because of the way that you live and all these kind of things. And legalism 
has a long storied history in the church, um, particularly in the American church from the 19, I want to say, 40s right through to the 1990s. You know, I was uh, raised in a kind of a legalistic environment. I was, a ra- I was raised Pentecostal. I don't know what you were raised in. By the way, why don't you let me know what you were raised in? I love your comments. Keep the comments coming. Um, always read them. But uh, let me know because you're either raised a relativist or a legalist. And, 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 and this is a reality of the Christian tradition where we we are in this one of these two camps okay and and here's my question for you right now which one are you right now cuz you are either really in this idea of well I can do what I want because God will forgive me or man look at my look at my life or look at how badly I feel God and then you're depressed and defeated all the time both are extremes and but I want to tell you this both the relativists and the legalists are in God's church. <laughs> they are. That's why there's so much tension in the church. That's why there's so much tension. Hello? Am I talking to anybody? In the church. You come from a legalist background, you're going to look at those relativists and you're going to gossip about them. You're going to talk about how evil they are with your fellow legalists. Uh, if you're a relativist, you're going to look at the legalists, you're going to say, listen, you guys are just way too uptight. You guys are too way too rules oriented. I just am so, you know, uh, encumbered really by the way that you come across. So here's the other thing I like to suggest about this. The church has generationally swung back and forth between these two extremes. It has. One generation is diehard legalists. We're going to obey God. We're going to get our lives right Right? So no going to movies and secular music and no alcohol and no parties. And in my mom's generation raised before me in the Pentecostal church, no dice, no, <laughs> no cards, no girls must not ever wear pants. Um, they have to go to church with little head coverings and little fishnets over their <laughs> eyes and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and then it kind of generationally swings to the other side, like whatever one generation believes, I always believe the next generation is going to rebel against it. So the next generation comes up and kind of my generation is, no, we don't want that. We don't want rules. We don't want, no, no, we don't want the fishnets over our face. We want the fishnets on our legs, right? That's how it's kind of got. We've swung over to the other end of the spectrum. And let me tell you this, I think in your own personal life, there's a swinging back and forth. One week you're a relativist and praise God for his grace. The other week you're a legalist and man, why can't more people live like me? And this is how we experience the Christian faith because both have something to say about our salvation. And God's church is made up of both people. Yes, there are moral codes and there are things that we should do. And at the same time, there is forgiveness and grace. And there is always another new day of grace in Christ Jesus. His mercies are new every morning. Lamentations, right? God's church is made up of both people. God's generational life in the church has been swinging back and forth between both people. And this is why there's a lot of tension in the church. And you're never going to truly eliminate the tension. You're never going to truly eliminate the tension. Because guess what? Both people need each other. Now, we don't need to be extremes, but we need each other. We need to challenge each other to get our identity rooted not in what we do, legalists, okay, what we do, or how we um, relate to God, right? You know, our, our, our 
our relativist brothers and sisters who are all about just feeling saved or feeling the spirit in worship. Um, both groups of people are in the church and both need to point each other back to who are we in Christ. So the relativist needs to understand we are slaves to Christ. And guess what the legalists need to understand? They need to understand they are married to Christ's Christ, not Christ's Christ. Christ singular, singular. So relativists, you guys are not able to just go on sinning as you want because that's going to lead to more and more slavery. We talked about that last week. Well, legalists don't get so caught up in rules and to-dos because you are going to become loveless worshipers or loveless followers of Jesus. And that's not going to reach anybody. And so that brings us to this week's edition of what it meant in Romans chapter 7. Let's get into the text. Here's what Paul says to the legalists. Uh, he, again, he's turning the page from relativists who want to sin no matter what to legalists. And I know he's turning the page because look what verse one says. Or do you not know brothers? And now notice the little qualifying statement here. For I am speaking to those who know the law. Who would have known the law in the first century church in Rome? The Jewish Christians. The Jewish Christians were saved first. They knew the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. They knew the story of Adam and Abraham and Moses and David, and they knew the Ten Commandments. They had it memorized in many respects. And so these are Christians in the church in Rome who were thoroughly baptized in the Torah. And so Paul says, I'm going to talk to you guys for a moment. I want to talk to those who know the law. And you know that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. So what I love about Paul is that he's always using the law to point to Christ. And here's how he's going to do it. He's going to talk about marriage and the law because marriage is a big deal in the first five books of the Old Testament. You can read it for yourself. For, so it says, verse two, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, and this is all according to the law, he's speaking their language, the Jewish language, he says, and if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But again, if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And she, if she marries another, she is not an adulteress. And in the church in Rome, when they would have heard these words read aloud in the gathering from the apostle Paul, who was, remember, a diehard Jewish lawkeeper, all the legalists, all the Jewish people, all the law lovers would have been saying, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yes, you can't commit adultery. That's in the Ten Commandments. And you can't get married again until your husband dies or your spouse dies. And so he's got them nodding, right? He's got them nodding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right, Paul. We all agree with this. What are you talking about? And then I love this because he's going to turn the page on them because he's going to talk about the fact that you've died to the law. And here's the reason why. Because you've married another, you've married Christ, and you are now in union, love, loving union with Christ. And this is important for Paul's legalist brothers in the Jewish faith who are now in Christ because here's what legalists tend to do. Legalists tend to diminish love. Legalists are so enamored with rule keeping, they forget that the relationship God wants with you is a loving relationship. And again, I ask you point blank, where are you 
on that spectrum? Where are you on that spectrum between the relativist who loves, you know, grace and the legalist who loves law? Have you slid over to the legalist side? I guarantee you, you're a lot less loving and a lot less forgiving. And you probably watch people, you probably people watch and you judge very quickly. There is a beautiful um, moment in Jesus's life where this is wonderfully illustrated for you. It is in the book of uh, Luke, and it has to do with a guy named Simon, a Pharisee, who asks Jesus to come over and eat with him. Now, take a look at what happens. It says in Luke chapter 7, verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a, what? Was a sinner. Okay? So now already we've got the main characters. We've got a Pharisee who would have been what Paul was. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, he says in Philippians chapter three, a rule keeper, a legalist, and then into the house comes a relativist, a sinner. When she learned, now, now, now she's a sinner now. And it says when she, the sinner, learned that he was reclining at the table in a Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now look at the legalist, the Pharisee's response. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who was touching him for she is a sinner. And Jesus does not deny what Simon thinks. Now think about this too. Simon is thinking about it. He doesn't say it. And Jesus is going to answer Simon point blank to his thoughts. He's going to answer Simon's thoughts. This is one of the classic realities of Jesus. Whenever Jesus was in a room with someone, he always knew what they were thinking. So <laughs> anybody who says, well, I can never tell God how I feel. He already knows how you feel. Anyway, Simon's thinking, you know, if he knew, right? Here he is. Simon's going full on legalist. She's, she's not a rule keeper. She's a, she's a sinner. She's a woman of the street. How dare she do this? And this guy, Jesus, must not be really a prophet because he would know. He would know if he was a prophet. Jesus does know. And Jesus then proceeds to tell Simon a story. And he says this in verse 41, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed, one owed, sorry, 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love, look at that, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. So Simon, right on, the, right on his lips, people who, <laughs> are forgiven more, will love more. Then turning, verse 44, to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? And I love that phrase because he's like, look, don't look at her lifestyle. Look at her. Do you see this woman? Do you see this person? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. This is exactly the problem that Paul is taking on in Romans chapter 7. There are legalists and there are relativists. The relativist wants to use the grace of God to continue to sin. And Paul says, no, because sin leads to slavery. 
The legalist wants to use the law of God to uh, look down on sinners and to elevate himself and to celebrate who he is in the eyes of God. And it leads to a loveless relationship with God. It leads to a religious, ritualistic, hard-hearted version of faith. And this, I would submit to you, legalism is far more detrimental to people's hearts and to people's minds than relativism is. I, I, I do believe there's dangers to relativism. Paul's talked about that, slavery. But there might be even more danger to legalism because it leads to a loveless, hard-hearted religiosity that doesn't reach people and doesn't have a heart for people and judges people and looks down at people, just like Simon did to this woman of sin. And then, by the way, Jesus goes on in that passage. He says, you sin, your sins are forgiven. So she's forgiven. And, and, and her love for God is on display at the forgiveness of God. Let me just say this about legalists. You may be a legalist if you get more upset at the sins of others than your lack of love for the Lord. You, you get more upset, right? You, you're a people watcher. You get on Facebook and you look at everybody else's sins. You're like, hey, what the heck is wrong with these people, right? You get more upset at what... Um, those people from the church, the other group of people in the church do, then, then the fact that maybe your love for the Lord is lacking. I, I bring you to Roman, I don't have this on the, on the screen, but Revelation chapter three, the book of uh, the church in Ephesus, or is it Revelation chapter two? The church in Ephesus has good works. They're rocking it. They're serving. They're, they're distributing food. They're doing all these things. He says, I know your works. Your works are awesome, but you've lost your first love. You can get so caught up in the work of the Lord that you stop loving the Lord of the work. Hashtag tweet that. You can get so caught up in the work of the Lord that you forget or you neglect the love of the Lord. And by the way, if you're watching, click the subscribe button, the like button, all that kind of stuff. Anyway, our relationship to the Lord is not one of servant and master alone. It's also a relationship of marriage. He has married us. This is why Paul will talk about the marriage relationship of a husband and wife in Romans, in Ephesians chapter 5. But then he says, I'm telling you that this is actually about Christ and the church. Okay, this is why uh, John the Baptist says that he's the bridegroom. I'm just the man who stands next to him and points to him. This is why Jesus, when he was questioned about fasting or not fasting with the disciples, they say, you know, why, why don't you fast? He says, look, the bridegroom is with the bride and we're not going to fast when we're together, but when we're separated, then they'll fast. So this picture of marriage in the Bible is essential because it's not just about us as humans. It's about our relationship to the Lord. This is why, my my friends, that uh, we must never, ever uh, substantiate any other marriage relationship other than that between one man and one woman, because this is a picture of a marriage relationship that Christ has consummated with his church, the bride. He is the bridegroom. We are the bride. And in his sacrificial love for us, laying down his life and dying for us, we come into union with him and the two shall be made one. We are one in Christ. He is in us. We are in him and through him, we bear fruit to God. We'll get to that in just a moment. And some people and legalists, listen, you get so upset about the sins of others and you were all about rule keeping that you lack love for the Lord and love for others. Now, some people get really worked up 
when we talk about the relativists and forgiveness and, you know, God's saving grace and God always holding on to you, never rejecting you, right? Um, and I love what Tim Keller says about this because this is fantastic because the legalists are always worried about the incentive to serve God. The legalists are always worried. And the relativists are like, no, I just want to love the Lord. And so here's the thing. Here's what Tim Keller writes about this, and I love it. Some might say, if I thought I was saved totally by grace and could not be rejected, I'd lose all incentive to lead a holy life. And he says, look, the answer is, well, then all the incentive you have now is fear of rejection or fear of failure. If you're, if you're a legalist, you are under the law. If you understand that you are accepted, the new incentive is grateful joy and love. That's the right incentive. And Tim Keller right here is spot on. He's spot on. What is your incentive for loving and serving the Lord? Is it because you want to get some notches, you know, in your in your uh, holy record? You want to get more jewels in your crown? You want to be a pillar in society? You want to look good to those in the church? Well, aren't you really just serving your own pride and own selfishness? Or are you only serving the Lord because you fear hell or fear rejection or fear that you haven't measured up? Do you think that the Lord is pleased by that? Do you think that the Lord who calls himself Father wants you to serve him in that kind of fear? Earthly fathers and earthly parents, ask yourself, do you want a child who, when he makes a mistake, always says, does this mean I'm now no longer in the family? I mean, would you love that if, you're, if your child, you, dis- you discipline your child and say, oh, does this mean I'm no longer your son? You wouldn't want a child like that. You wouldn't want your child to live like that. Neither does your heavenly father in heaven. Your heavenly father wants you to live in a loving, grateful, joyful relationship with him, knowing that he'll never let you go. He'll never separate you. He'll never cast you out. He's got you in the palm of his hands. No man shall pluck you out. Nothing in all creation can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Amen. That then becomes a a relationship that is undergirded by gratefulness, joy, right? You're happy to be his. And this is what Paul is going to talk about and challenge the legalists with in Romans chapter 7. Let's read verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that you may be, we may bear fruit for God. So remember, they were nodding their heads about those law guidelines about marriage. And he says, now listen, uh, you brothers have also died to the law, just like a woman or man who dies and a woman is free. Well, you have died to the law through the body of Christ and that in Christ Jesus, we died to the marriage relationship to the law so that we may belong to another. That is a key line right there. So that we may belong. Oh, my friends, get this in your heart. The purpose of our salvation is not just to serve God, but to belong to God. And that's tweetable right there too as well. (laughs) The purpose of our salvation is not just to serve God, but to belong to him. See the the beauty of our relationship with God is not about slavery. It is about belonging. It's not about being, you know, oh, oh, we're just slaves. Oh, no, no, no. It's about we belong to God. We are his. And then it says this to him who has been raised from the dead. That's Jesus Christ. In order, in order, purpose that we may bear fruit for God. What a tremendous blessing it is to to belong to Jesus. That means that we are no longer wandering aimlessly through the world. We belong to God. We have a family. And think about the power of a family, the power of marriage. A mother and a father come together, produce offspring. Offspring outlives them. This is what Paul is talking about here, that you bear fruit to God and things that you have experienced with belonging to Jesus has 
outlasted you and there is a legacy left beyond you, just like a marriage relationship leaves behind children. So listen to me, a church that is baptized in the gospel, full of the Holy Spirit and enjoys the Lord's presence, I'm going to tell you that church is a life-giving community that reproduces converts and disciples, not just converts, but disciples, and grows because a family that is healthy will grow. A family that is full of love will attract outsiders. And this is why there's a danger to legalism. This is why Paul is going to really hammer this in Romans chapter 7, that legalism leads to lovelessness and lovelessness leads to a lack of evangelism and a lack of growth in the church. Remember those churches in the old days? Your church, my church, legalists, men. Nobody wanted to be a part of that church. We didn't even want to be a part of that church. We were just trying to check the box to be good before God so that he would accept us to heaven one day. No, no, no. Legalism will destroy the love and the love and the and the love fellowship of a church. Now, relativism will destroy it because immorality will also hurt people. But legalism will destroy it because we'll all be about ourselves and prideful and arrogant. And both extremes are dangerous. Both extremes are dangerous. Again, which one are you? Where do you side on? Where do you where do you try to kind of tw- tend to get gravitationally pulled? Relative to this, I'm just going to do what I want. Or legalist, hey, I'm better than everybody else. Okay, watch yourself. And that's what Paul's talking about here in Romans 6 and 7. So verse 5, he says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for, the death, for, for death. Back to the problem of the law. The problem of the law is this. It arouses our sin. Now notice, <laughs> notice this. The law does not produce sin, it arouses sin. Paul will talk about this a little bit later as well in his own personal testimony. We all know this. There is a certain amount of enjoyment we get in our flesh for doing something we know is wrong. Even the book of Proverbs says this. Proverbs 19, Proverbs 9:7 says, uh, sorry, 9:17 says, stolen water is sweet, bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Okay? And then the next verse says, but he doesn't know that the dead are there. Uh, there is a, a pleasure to sin. Hebrews talks about that. Hebrews 11. There's a pleasure to sin for a season. And we, we even have a statement in our culture vernacular. Rules are made to be broken. Right? That's, that's our idea. There, the fourth century theologian Augustine talks about how when he was you know, a, a pagan, he and his friends would go to this rich man's house, sneak into the yard, steal the pears off the tree, and they wouldn't even eat the pears. They just throw them into the garbage. And he talks about the fact that the pleasure was not in providing our needs or eating the fruit. The pleasure was just in stealing it. By the way, (laughs) can I get a little political here? That's why this whole COVID scenario is just really exposing the cultural legalist, not the scriptural or, or Christian legalist. I'm talking about the cultural legalist because rule lovers... Man, they, they, they will foist on you. And these last two years from our governors and from our legislators have been about rules, 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 follow the rules. And hasn't it been amazing the number of governors and mayors that have imposed these rules on their citizens have also broken them. How many governors, how many mayors, right? They put the rules, don't leave, lock down, stay in place, and then Thanksgiving comes around and they're flying all over the country, flying outside the country to have a, you know, wonderful holiday with their friends and family. Here's the thing about legalists. They, all that, all that happened, all that that did was prove that usually the ones who love the rules the most are also the ones who break the rules the hardest. 
<laughs> oh, man, I'll tell you. It is so true. So uh, back to the text before we get too political and bring in too much deep end here. Um, he says, when, when we were in the flesh, you know, our sinful passions were aroused and we bore fruit for death. That's what the law does. It stirs up the sinful nature and it just bears fruit for death. And then verse six, he says, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve, look at this, there it is, in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. In other words, that we are released from the law and we are brought into belonging and love for the Lord. We are brought into a marriage relationship. We needed to be released from the law. Otherwise, Jesus would not have come. Because the law, while good, is a heavy burden that we cannot carry. Now, the Jews knew this. The Jews knew that the law, while beautiful and good, was also heavy. Uh, they used to call the law a yoke. There is a passage in Acts chapter 15 where he where they're talking about Gentiles coming into the church. And they, look, we cannot put this heavy yoke on them because even we could not do it. The whole law, 613 laws in the Old Testament, the feast days, the, 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 the laws of cleanliness and ritual cleansing. It was heavy. It was a yoke. Like an oxen gets a yoke on his neck. That's why Jesus comes in Matthew 11. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Why? Because I'm going to set you free from the letter of the law and I'm going to transform you from the inside so that you, there are, there's a birthing of obedience to God from the heart. Romans chapter six, there's a birth of obedience from the heart that you love to do what he wants to do. And there's a written code. And then there's a living, loving relationship through the spirit. Which one are you? Which one are you? Okay. I want to, I want to bring some legalists through some checks. And here's my fear about this episode. My fear about this episode is that I'm talking to a lot of people who aren't legalists. You were raised legalist and you swung over to the relativist side. So if you know a legalist or two, please share the video with them and you know also subscribe. But nonetheless, four signs uh, that you are still under the law. And I get these from a great theologian, great pastor of the last century. His name was Ray Stedman out in um, San Francisco, California. Fantastic Bible expositor. But I want to give you Ray Stedman's four universal signs that all men uh, have and live under some kind of law. And, they, and notice that he says all men have. Because even if you don't live under the biblical law, I guarantee you you're living under some kind of law. That's what Ray Stedman says. So sign number one, we are naturally proud or boastful of our achievements. Oh, look at me. Look at, look at this. Look at what I did. Look at what I produced. Look, look at my children. Look at my home. Look at my, you know what I'm saying? It doesn't even have to be the Old Testament law. It just has to be whatever law you're living to. So some uh, living according to. So some people are living according to the American dream law. And when they get the big house and the five bedrooms and the four bedroom bathrooms, and they get the boat and they get the pool and they get the, all this, and look at me, and post it in Facebook and then, you know what I'm saying? Or you're living according to the beauty law and you're on Instagram and you're posing and you're doing all the things and you're, you know, filter, filter, filter. And you're trying to live according to that law so that you can get the likes. I need the likes. I need the likes. I mean, I know people, I know people that they live for likes. They live and they count them. Look, if you are counting your likes, you are living under the law of beauty or Instagram or whatever, you know, appreciation from strangers, <laughs> which I don't really understand. But you got to get broken free from that. It'll, it'll enslave you. You'll go to bed wondering, why did I only get 15 likes and not 20 likes, right? So 
you're naturally proud or boastful of your achievements. Number two, you are critical of others who fail in ways that you don't. You know, this is the whataboutism kind of mantra. Well, I know I'm bad, but what about them? Oh, why don't they get their life together? Why can't they be? Why can't they be more like us? I don't understand why they sin in that way. I only sin in this way, but why do they sin in that way, right? And we're critical of others who fail in ways that we don't. Number three, we are reluctant to admit our failures. You're living under some kind of law because you'll never, you'll never willingly repent. You just, when you're confronted, you deny. No, 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 you don't understand. No, 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 that's not me. No, 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 you misunderstood. No, and when you are reluctant to admit your failures, you're living under law. And it doesn't, again, it doesn't have to be the Old Testament law. It just has to be your, your preferred version of the law. And then number four, this one's big. You suffer from depression and discouragement and defeat. Why? Because you can't truly live up to the law. In some way, you're going to fail. In some way, you're going to fail. Or even worse, you're going to succeed in your personal preferred, preferred law and realize that it wasn't that great. This is why celebrities who make it to the top are ultimately the most empty people on the planet because they got everything that they thought they needed to make themselves good. They were following the law of celebrity, the law of fame, the law of popularity. And they got it. They checked off the boxes. They made it to the top. And then they were like, wait a second, I got to keep it here or it's really not fulfilling. And <laughs> you know what I'm saying? This is why Madonna once famously said that I always feel like a failure. I always feel like I have to keep up this appearance. I always have to keep working on my image and it's never enough. And I always inside know that it's never enough because she's living according to a law. And it's not even God's law. Like, it's kind of funny. All the people who, you know, castigate God's law are, they're living under their own law and they don't even realize it. Anyway, law kills. Law presses us down. Law pushes us to the ground and destroys us. This is why we need to die to the law and live to Christ. Let's get back to the text. Romans chapter seven. What then shall we say? Is the law sin? No, 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 by no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Now, there is a purpose of the law, and he's going to get to it. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. Now, what is he saying here? Fundamentally, he's saying the law is not bad. The law has a purpose. It it reveals the problem. Let me put it like this. The law is the x-ray machine that reveals your broken bone. If you, you know, before we had x-rays, how many people may have broken a bone and they're walking with a limp and they're walking this severe pain? Why does it hurt? Well, you broke a bone. The only way you see that brokenness is by examining it under something that sees beneath the surface of your skin. And then you see that the problem is you need to set that bone. You need to get that bone strengthened again. That's what the law does. The law sees beneath the veneer of the image that we want to project to everybody else. And it exposes us to the reality that our bone is broken. The inside of us is at odds. It's not right. It's not set. And if we do not get exposed to that, we will walk with a perpetual limp and pain through life. Because I know some of you might say, well, I don't want law to expose the sin in me. Why don't I just avoid the law? No, the law is the best thing that could happen to you. Because what it does is it becomes the x-ray machine that it reveals the real problem within you. 
That's what the law's best work is. The law's best work is to bring us to spiritual death in ourselves so that we look to the God who raises the dead. The law's job is to lead us to God. That's why he says, I was once alive apart from the law, but then sin, the law came producing me all kinds of covetousness, and then I, I sinned, and then I died. In other words, in other words, the x-ray machine exposed that, that, that I covet, and that covetousness I hate is not, oh, that's why I do all these stupid things. I covet, and therefore I steal. I covet, and therefore I commit adultery. I covet, and therefore I go, and I do all these stupid things to hurt others and hurt my re- relationships and destroy my relationships with people and maybe even hurt my reputation in the community. And why did I do all that? Oh, because there's a serious problem deep down inside of me. That's what Paul's saying here. That's what Paul's saying here. That's why in Philippians, he says, all that I thought was to my credit, I now consider rubbish. He was he was jealously ch- chasing Pharisaism and, and, and uh, legalistic righteousness and uh, blamelessness under the law so that he could be head and shoulders above all his contemporaries. And he looks at that and he says, all of that was foolish. All of that was rubbish. And I was living this this defeated life under the law because I because I didn't know that I was broken inside between me and God. See the beauty of this? You see how the gospel sets us free from self-destruction. Some people they avoid the Bible like the plague and they wonder they they wonder why their life is just destroyed because because there's a deeper problem in you. It needs to be exposed so that it can be so that you can turn to Christ and be healed. All right. Romans 7:10. He says, "As the very commandment that promised life proved death to me, for since seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and killed me, the law therefore is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good." Again, there's nothing wrong with the law, and this is where we stop today and we got to get moving here so that I can finish this episode. Let's get into what all of this means. What does it mean that we are married to Christ? What does it mean? Okay, again, back to the spectrum. Where are you? Legalist? Relativist? And again, I, I, I fear that I'm talking to a lot of people that are more toward this side, but nonetheless, Perhaps you're over here. Perhaps you're over here. Um, are you focused on rule keeping, uh, to do's, and your personal record of righteousness, or are you more focused on just grace, grace, grace? I just want to be able to do what I want, and then I'll just ask God for forgiveness. Both of are, both are extremes. But what Paul has been saying here in Romans chapter seven is to legalists, to law keepers, to rule keepers, to to doers. God wants legalism to die and love to arise. He doesn't want you to serve by the letter of the law. He wants you to serve through the act of love. You love the Lord. By the way, this is why the Bible commands us to love the Lord. And it doesn't command all people. It commands his people to love the Lord. I'm going to give you proof. Uh, Psalm 31 verse 23. Love the Lord, all you who? His saints. Not pagans, not non-saints, not not non-Christians, his saints. Love the Lord, you his saints. The Lord preserves his faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. So the commandment of loving God is reserved for those who have been saved by God out of sin and brought to him in relationship. This is why Deuteronomy 6, on the heels of Deuteronomy 5, which is a retelling of the Ten Commandments, Deuteronomy 6 says, 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You're going to love the Lord and you're going to obey from the heart. Now, Israel couldn't do that. We needed our hearts changed through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, through the Holy Spirit's work. But the command, nevertheless, is universal. That those who are Israel, those who are saved, are commanded to love the Lord. By the way, Christians lay off of non-Christians not loving the Lord. (laughs) Their hearts haven't been changed. They are not His. This is why what I tell our uh, worship leaders on the weekend, and sometimes it still happens, but please don't tell everybody to raise your hands. Please don't tell everybody to lift up their hands and sing because some of those people are are not saved. And we want to get them saved, we want to bring them to Christ, but before they're that, we don't want to command them to do something they're not expected to do. The, the, those who should love the Lord and serve him from their heart are those whom the Lord has saved. One more passage and then we're going to move on. Psalm 97, verse 10. Oh, you who love the Lord hate evil, right? He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. So if I love the Lord, I hate evil. The Lord is our salvation from evil. Pharaoh enslaved, the Lord saved. And now that he's saved, we serve him because we're grateful, because he doesn't put upon us a yoke of slavery that is degrading and humiliating and debilitating. He puts a yoke of servanthood or a yoke of slavery that is loving, that is gracious, that is kind, that is empowering, because that's who he is, and that's who what the relationship that he wants with us. So fundamentally, here's the reality. We are married to Christ. It is a covenant. It is a covenantal relationship that we have entered into. Marriage in the Old Testament is a covenant. Read Malachi chapter 4 or 2. There is a covenantal relationship that we have with God. Jesus is our bridegroom. He is our husband, if you will. And that means we are in privileged status with God. Now, all of this matters greatly, and it brings me to our final segment, Why It Matters. All right. God is saving legalists in showing them the love relationship he has enacted with them through Christ Jesus. We come into a marriage relationship with God, and this is why it matters. Are you ready? Think about this. Those of you who are married or those of you who want to get married, what do you get in a marriage? What do you get? Number one, you get love, and that is acceptance and affection, and every human being needs those two things. By the way, every human being needs the rest of this list too. There's six things on the list. You get communication. That is prayer. We get to talk to God. We get to hear from God. Number three, we get communion. That is fellowship with God. This is what John talks about in 1 John chapter 1. We, we write these things to you so that you might have fellowship with us with, because our fellowship is with the Father. Like that's, that's what you need. You need fellowship and communion with God. And before you get your needs met, if you're in a marriage of giving and sharing, you each provide for each other. There are different needs. There's his needs and her needs, right? And if you are in a giving, healthy marriage, the husband will try to provide for his wife. The wife will try to provide for her husband because both need different things, but that's what we get in a marriage. Number five, you get satisfaction, enjoyment, pleasure. This is what God wants for every marriage. Rejoice in the wife of your youth, the Bible says. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. These are the pictures of marriage in the, Old, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And then number six, and lastly, you get to leave behind a legacy beyond you. That's meaning. That's impact. That's purpose. Because if a marriage is healthy, physically, uh, you're going to have some babies. Those babies are going to grow up. They're going to outlive you. And they're, gonna, they're going to carry your, um, your values 
through their life and into the world, hopefully. That's the ultimate aim. Again, this is in the ideal version of marriage, but that's what God gives us ultimately in Christ Jesus because we are married to Christ. Let me just say something to you about the uh, leaving a legacy because there are some people who haven't had children physically, but you had children adoptively. And can I just tell you, don't ever feel like a second-class parent because of that. Never, ever, ever. Mm -mm. Because the picture that God uses uh, for saving us is the picture of adoption, right? Only Jesus was biologically produced by the Father <laughs> through the Holy Spirit conceiving in Mary. We, The rest of us, we're adopted. So never, never, ever second-class status your adoptive parenting, if that's you. Just want to leave you with that thought. Came to my mind as I was thinking about it. Don't want anybody to leave here thinking less of themselves. We are married to Christ. That's what Paul is talking about. And I emphasize this because here's where a lot of Christians are. A lot of Christians are substituting relationship for religious rituals. And these are the legalists. These are the legalists. Again, not the relativists, the legalists. What does it look like when I substitute a relationship for religious ritual? When it's about checking religious boxes, i.e., and pay attention here, going to church, attending mass, practicing the sacraments or ordinances, whatever you think it is. Oh, that's just going to get it done. I've got to go punch the clock for God and get on with my life. That is a religious ritual. You are a legalist and you don't, you don't even realize it. Number two, when it's about your position advantages in the church body. Now, we talked about this. So you don't even have to have the Old Testament law. It could, be in, it could be just a cultural law. But nonetheless, when it's all about your position, where, what do you have going for you? Are you, are you in charge of that? Here, here, here's, let me get onto a sticky, a sticky subject. Oh, there are, I want to be on stage or I, I want to be uh, with, I want to have the microphone or, or I need to be in charge of that ministry or I need to own that because that's, that's what makes me meet. No, you're actually substituting relationship with God for religious ritual. And here's the thing about position. Here's the thing about advantages. Here's the thing about any title that you have in the church. Eventually you're going to have to give it up. Eventually, you're going to have to get retired, get out of the big picture, move on, let someone else carry the torch because you're going to die. I'm going to die. See, fundamentally, the best thing that I can do for the church is raise up other men to preach and teach the gospel for the church that are beyond me, that are younger than me because I'm going to die and I got to give this position up at some point. Anyway, back to the point. You're substituting relationship for religious ritual when it's about man-made rules and not God's desire for your life. Uh, oh, no, 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 sorry, I have this out of order. It's about protecting insiders instead of reaching outsiders. That's, that, that's when we know we're substituting relationship for ritual because the legalists want people to follow the rules and they don't really have love for others. Uh, so you're protecting insiders instead of reaching outsiders. And then when it's about man-made rules and not God's desire for our lives. I had them backwards, but nonetheless. When it's about man-made rules. So if you grew up legalist like me, you remember the rules. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls who do. Adi, 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 on and on and on. All manner of legalistic rule-keeping that made you an insider. And it breaks the relationship with God. It breaks the heart of God. And most importantly, it diminishes our witness in the world. It really does. It really does. No one wants to be a part outside of God, outside of real diehard legalists. No one wants to be a part of a legalistic church. And God doesn't want you to be a part of one either. So here's fundamentally why it matters. Because God desires love for him and not simply a commitment to his rules. Yes, the rules are important. The rules matter. They expose our brokenness so that we can look to Jesus to put us back together. But ultimately, just keeping the rules 
is not what God is after. He wants you and I to be in a loving relationship and thereby the love that we have for him uh, produces a commitment to his rules because we know his rules are not burdensome. They lead to life. They lead to health. They lead to prosperity in our lives. And here's the last reason why this matters. Are you ready for it? Because when we abide in the love of God and not the rituals of religion, we end up loving one another. Yes, yes, friend. Legalists, hear me. If you are married to the law and if you are struggling to get other people to obey the law, you're never gonna win. You're never gonna win people. Christ won people because he loved, because he lived in the love of God and he perfectly obeyed God. Okay, he, didn't, he did not diminish the law. He never broke one single commandment, but he did so because he loved the Father. The Father loved him and he lived in the perfect love of the Father. And that love extended to sinners in a loving, gracious uh, forgiveness and mercy that attracted sinners. It did not repel sinners. And this is so important in our day and age because the world is getting worse and worse and worse in many respects in regards to the laws of God. And we have we got to be careful to our outsiders, to our relation in our relationship to outsiders, to be loving and merciful and gracious, knowing that until the Holy Spirit changes their hearts, they cannot obey. They will not obey. So it is our job to model for them a life lived in the marital covenant with Jesus, wherein we love him and enjoy him and not just simply ritualistically obey him. Amen? Last passage, and then we're done, and it's an important passage, 1 John 3.14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love each other. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. But look at this, verse 16. But by this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And let me just say, finally in conclusion, show me a church filled with people who know that God loves them, and they love God, and they obey God from the heart, not the rule-keeping, from the heart and they share with each other and they care for each other and they forgive each other and they seek to restore each other and they seek to serve each other. Why? Because they know they already have in their marriage with Christ all the things that they will ever need to have and they don't need to get that from using others and pushing others down and promoting themselves. And I'm telling you, show me a church like that and that church will grow. That church will change its community. That church will impact the next generation. Amen? Legalists, time to start loving. <laughs> Relativists, time to start serving. But legalists, time to start loving. Isn't it beautiful? Romans 6, Romans 7, God's challenging both with two pictures. Maybe you're on the relativist side. You need to realize that if you keep going in the wrong direction, you keep sinning, you're going to be enslaved to it. It's going to destroy you. It's going to destroy your relationships. You're going to end up with pains and hurts that God does not want for you. Legalist, you're tied to the rules. You're tied to religion. You're tied to all these rituals. And nobody wants to be a part of it. And you're only about it for yourself. And it's leading to pride. And it's leading to, you know, uh, you know, just a disregard for others. And God doesn't want either extreme in the church. He wants us to come together under the cross of Jesus Christ and love each other. Amen. 
Okay, everybody, check out timhatchlive.com. Check out the social media channels and make sure most importantly that you are subscribed to this channel, that you are clicking that notification bell so you can get notified on your phone. Like I got all these notifications, right? Every time we go live, uh, it pops up on my phone too. So anyway, make sure you click that notification bell and uh, f uh, follow along with the channel every time we go live. Go to timhatchlive.com to buy the book. And 10 Questions with Tim is going to make a comeback. I guarantee it's going to make a comeback. It's just not for a couple of weeks now. First week in February, the first Thursday, I will be doing that segment. I know many of you enjoy it. Submit your questions. It's not too late. I think we have plenty of room. Ask at Tim Hatch Live or the comments below, and I would love to answer your questions. And good news, everybody, all the deep enders, the deep end is back next week, Tuesday night, 730, and I will bring that content to you. Otherwise, it has been a wonderful privilege to bring this message to you. I hope it's blessed you and established you in Christ. Share the video with someone that you know. Maybe there's a few legalists that need to hear it. Bring the message to them. God bless you guys. See you next time on the channel.